Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and this is my podcast. The podcast is called The Gospel Comes to Life, and each week I address the gospel for the coming Sunday. This week, we're looking forward toward the first Sunday in the Easter season, a season that allows us as Christians to remember the events post-resurrection for 50 days, 10 days longer than the season of penitence that we have just completed that the season called Lent. And so, once again, if you have only recently discovered me online, you can find out more about me by visiting my website. The coordinates are ArizonaBibleClass.com. And there you can find out uh, about my classes in the Phoenix metropolitan area, as well as read my bio, and also look at opportunities that are now available to travel with me to Israel. That trip is scheduled for October 19 through 29 of 2020. And again, by following the prompts at the website, ArizonaBibleClass.com, you can find your way to devotion travel, and there you can actually look at the details about that next scheduled trip to Israel. Now, having said that, I'm going to draw your attention to what is the first of two final chapters in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is unique in that regard. The Gospel effectively will end with our Gospel passage this week. The passage in reference is that found in John chapter 20, verses 19 until the end of the chapter, and that would take us to verse 31. And then, of course, we have John chapter 21, additionally, as an epilogue, an epilogue that relates a story about a resurrection appearance of Jesus in Galilee. But that's a gospel for yet another Sunday in the Easter season. So now we'll take a look at our gospel of the resurrection, an event that takes place on the evening of that first day of the week. In fact, the gospel opens with these words, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and spoke to them, saying, Peace be with you. Now let's pause and remind ourselves that the probable location of this particular room was that of the site of the Last Supper. It appears that this is where the followers of Jesus have been gathering behind locked doors out of fear of the Jews. We, of course, acknowledge the fact that every single person in that room is Jewish themselves, and so the fear they harbor is toward a particular group of Jews, Jewish religious authorities who have stood in direct opposition to the message of Jesus and were responsible for bringing him before Pilate and insisting that his life be taken from him in a most violent manner. He dies our Lord of crucifixion. And so that's the back story. It's the evening of the first day of the week. So more than likely, the sun has already set. The first day of the week, remember, in Jewish according of time, a lunar-based calendar, is from Saturday evening to Sunday evening. That's that 24-hour period of the biblical day. And so with evening on the first day of the week, it's late afternoon on Sunday for you 
and I. The doors that they were behind were locked, which would have been cause for suspicion. We note dutifully that in the Middle East, we live and move in an open door culture. I use the example of my own neighborhood where I to leave my house now and drive uh, to the local store. And on the way, note that every single one of the front doors of every single home on my street was wide open. That would cause suspicion. And I would wonder what's going on. It would be typically normal if every one of those doors and the security door as well were closed tight. That's not the case in the Middle East. Having lived in the Middle East and in fact, in the old city of Jerusalem for a little over a year in an apartment above an American hospital deep in the Muslim quarter. It was quite common to make my way down to the local markets. And as I did so, note that door after door after door was in fact wide open. This was a way of the local population, neighbors all, suggesting that they have nothing to hide there are no secrets behind their doors. In fact, had I made my way down to those markets during that time when I lived in the old city and noted curiously that all of them were locked up tight, that's when I would begin to be worried. So it's not an insignificant fact that on that evening of the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, when by this time reports have begun to trickle in that Jesus has, in fact, risen on the other side of the tomb, there was still fear. And the fear required that those doors be locked. And the fear was that those Jewish religious authorities would still be on the lookout for those men and women who followed Jesus. That explains why Jesus, suddenly appearing before them, in shock registered on their faces, needs to say to them, Shalom, which is a way of addressing them and wishing them a profound peace. Shalom, we translate it into English, peace be with you. Now, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. This a demonstration to them that it was actually Jesus himself who stood before them and his hands as well as his side clearly bore the signs of the wounds of crucifixion. The wound in the side is detailed only in the Gospel of John. And I'll remind you of that particular passage. Just after Jesus dies, John, our Gospel author and eyewitness of this particular atrocity, in John chapter 19, verse 31, writes that it was the preparation day, and in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day of that week was a solemn one, the Jews, Jewish religious leaders, asked Pilate that the legs be broken of all three crucified victims, and that they be then taken down. So, given permission to do so, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and then of the other who had been crucified with Jesus, breaking the legs, actually shattering the shins of crucified victims, uh, disabled their ability to lift themselves up with the power of their legs 
in order to draw breath. Their arms, not as strong as the muscles in their legs, would work involuntarily as long as possible to draw breath, but in a mere matter of minutes, they would succumb to suffocation. An agonizing way to die uh, that was the result of having their shins shattered before their very eyes. Now, when they came, though, to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, he had breathed his last. He had cried out victoriously, it is finished. They did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side. And immediately, John noted that blood and water, separated serums, flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is speaking the truth, so that you also may come to believe. This is the detail found only in the Gospel of John. What that soldier was doing was making sure that Jesus had in fact expired. He was responsible for the events of the crucifixion, and it was his duty to make sure all three victims had died before their bodies were taken off the cross. In the outside possibility that Jesus had simply fainted away or swooned in some manner, way, or form, he would take his practiced death thrust of a lance and drive it deep into the left side of Jesus, the side of the victim closest, of course, to the heart. And that lance would have pierced the heart itself, and out of it what appeared to flow were streams red and clear, blood and water. There are theological motifs associated with this, but it also is an assurity given to that centurion on duty that the victim had in fact died. A curious note for your consideration. Whenever you look at a crucifix, seek to see what side of the body the wound of Jesus appears on. In my experience, it's been almost 100% of the time that the wound appears on the right side of Jesus. And when, in point of fact, standing before a victim only crucified a mere six feet above the surface of the earth, the practiced death blow of a Roman soldier was with his lance to drive that point deep into the left side of the victim, again, the side closest to the heart. A lance driven through the right side of the body has to pass through cartilage, bone, lung material in order to get to the heart, and the exit of those separated serums would not be as easily evident. The reason that crucifixes, however, depict the wound of Jesus on his right side has to do with a middle Eastern belief that anything having to do with the left is somehow not to be mentioned. The left hand is the hand you use for toilet hygienic practices. In Latin, the word left, sinestre, is the root for our word sinister. You never trusted a left-handed man. You don't want to be engaged in battle with a left-handed warrior. And so, as a result of that, bodies the corpus on the cross of the Catholic faith community do bear witness to the wound in the side, but typically it's on the wrong side. However, now you know the reason why. Now, coming back then to our gospel passage, Jesus appears before them 
And as he then comforts them with the word shalom, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. There was evidence before them that certainly was probed and touched that indicated to them that Jesus had rose, has risen bodily from the grave. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a metaphorical resurrection. It wasn't as if they just remembered him as he was before. He was standing there, body, soul, and spirit. Now, after that experience of probing the wounds, and that would be the reason he showed them his hands and his feet, to give them the opportunity to do so, he said to them, Shalom, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Those whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and those whose sins you retain are retained. The power of the keys. It reaches back to Matthew and the 16th chapter, uh, wherein Matthew records the narrative of Peter's acclamation of Jesus and his role in salvation history. You're familiar with Peter's profession of faith in regard to Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and following. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, men and women, in his company, as we travel, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The title Son of Man is clearly messianic and has been proven to be a title of the Messiah since the time of the prophet Daniel, 600 years earlier. You can see that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Well, they replied, good news. Some say, you are John the Baptist, obviously, having returned from the grave. Others, Elijah, having come down from heaven. He, having ridden a fiery chariot into the heavens above, he had ascended into heaven. He had been assumed into heaven, and so he could come back and return whenever he wished. And still others say that you are Jeremiah, or one of the other Jeremiah-like prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, speaking for the group, said in reply, Well, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. Now we know that by this time in the public ministry of Jesus, he has been residing in the home of Andrew and Peter and their father, John, for the better part of two years. There's no possible way that he has forgotten the name of Peter's father. In the Middle East, all I need to know, to know everything I need to know about you, is the name of your father and where you're from. If the name of your father names a man of honor and where you're from, a place I accord with honor, then I trust you implicitly. In point of fact, Jesus is so delighted in Peter's response that he calls him the son of Jonah. Jonah is Galilee's most famous prophet, and he's saying by 
referring to Peter as the son of Jonah, you are now in the spirit of Galilee's most honored son. You're thinking as God's agent thinks. And so I say to you, you are Peter. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So these words spoken, perhaps just weeks earlier, are now reiterated in this resurrection appearance of Jesus, John chapter 20. Those who sins you forgive are forgiven them. And those who sins you retain are retained because you have listened to my teaching and you know what expectations I have toward my disciples. You know what sin is and how to avoid it. Sin, a condition of alienation and separation from God that we codify in degree, simple, serious, and mortal. You, you are now doctors of the soul. And you can help people rid themselves of those things that are weighing them down and free them to live a life that will allow them to proclaim the gospel. Now, all of that in advance of the real hero of our narrative this coming week. Thomas, sometimes called the doubter. And we'll see why in just a moment. Because Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve apostles, was not with them when Jesus came. Why is Thomas called Didymus? Well, the word Didymus means the twin. And so it must have been imagined that he bore a striking resemblance to someone. And some biblical scholars have imagined, and I would concur, that more than likely the appearance he most resembled was that of Jesus. This would explain for me why Judas, under the cloak of darkness, in that darkened olive grove where Jesus would be found and subsequently arrested, said to those in his company that he would identify Jesus, the one they were to arrest, with a kiss. It seems to me that Jesus, such a public figure, would be very easy to recognize by those in closest company, as well as the average bystander. Jesus was a very public figure, and yet Judas wanted to make sure they arrested the right man. Is it possible that this Thomas, called Didymus, bore a striking resemblance to Jesus? Well, here's an anecdotal argument for you. In some traditional teachings of Islam, a tradition that honors the prophets and the prophet's mother in great regard, you will find taught that Jesus, the great prophet, healer, miracle worker, and spokesman of God, never suffered the horrors of the crucifixion. Rather, they were suffered by someone who looked like him, the apostle Thomas. And therefore, it was Thomas who died, and Jesus, who had hidden himself away, who reappeared and claimed that he had been restored from life after death. Again, an anecdotal argument to be sure, but it's based on this idea that Thomas is called Didymus, Didi, 
the twin of someone. And it's mentioned not only here in John chapter 20, but also we'll see in a moment in John chapter 11 as well. Now, the other disciples at some later point in verse 25 said to him, that is to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he replied to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doesn't this suggest to you that he's asking for the same opportunity afforded them to examine the corporeal nature of the resurrected Jesus? It seems to me in their description of the events of that initial appearance, they detailed to Thomas that they were able to take their fingers and probe the nail marks in his hands, and in fact, take their hand and put it into his side, coming away with the confident assurance that he was every part there, but in a resurrected body. They had that tactile evidence in their memory banks, and that's all Thomas wanted as well. Now, we call him a doubter because it appears that he had doubts at this point their proclamation, their understanding of the fact that Jesus has conquered the grave. And there is a sense of doubt. He's not quite convinced yet, but I wouldn't call him a doubter and that would settle the issue. Because a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was also with them. Again, they were behind closed doors and the doors again were locked. And Jesus, although the doors were locked, came and stood in their midst and again said, Shalom, peace be with you. And seeing Thomas there a week after the events that opened our gospel passage, he said, Thomas, come now, put your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but rather believe. Now again, this suggests to me that what Thomas wanted was the same opportunity the others had had the week before to carefully examine Jesus. But Thomas responds and answers Jesus and says to him simply, my Lord and my God, which would be a revelation to all of us that he didn't need to probe the wounds of Jesus's hand or put his hand in his side, that his doubt did not linger. He came to faith. Now, I mentioned earlier that I would draw your attention briefly, and I will, to John chapter 11, because John chapter 11 reveals a characteristic of Thomas, which allays this idea that he's a doubter. The story involves the raising of Lazarus. And in a certain point, in chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, we need to go back to Judea. But the disciples, his students, say to him, Rabbi, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders at that time, were just trying to stone you to death, and you want to go back there? And Jesus responds, 
Yes. He says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I need to go to awaken him. But the disciples demure and say to him, Master, if he's sleeping, he will be saved. If he's resting comfortably, he's on the mend. They didn't understand, as John relays in verse 13, that Jesus had been talking about his death while they thought that he meant ordinary sleep. So Jesus said to them, clearly, Lazarus has died. And I'm glad for you, he says, that I was not there, that you may believe based on what you're going to see happen as I call Lazarus from his tomb. Let's go to him. And here it is in John chapter 11, verse 16. Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, I'm in. Let's also go to die with him. That's a statement of a man of courage who says, I don't doubt. I'll move forward in faith. So what's going on in John chapter 20? Well, remember biblical faith based on the teachings of Dr. Billy Graham, is a three-fold process, right? Biblical faith to be achieved begins with knowledge. Upon that knowledge, you then add belief. And upon that belief, you then enter the final part of the equation, and that is trust. Knowledge, belief, and then trust. The great Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard spoke about a leap of faith. What he was talking about is that journey from belief to trust. And Dr. Billy Graham uses a wonderful illustrative example. A young couple, newly married, honeymoons in Niagara Falls and sees printed on a poster that the great Marcel is presenting himself at two o'clock that afternoon and at that occasion, he will ride his bicycle across a tight rope stretched from the United States to Canada and then ride it back. That's knowledge of an event. But seeing is believing. So they buy a couple of tickets. And at two o'clock, they are amazed as the great Marcel sits astride that bicycle and rides confidently across the great Niagara falls, and then back. That's belief. You have knowledge of the event. You don't believe it. You see it. Now you believe it. But what about trust? What about that leap of faith? What about that last element that seals the deal? Well, Dr. Graham suggested that is evidenced when the great Marcel dutifully picks out of the crowd that young couple and rides his bike over to them and says, well, you know that I promoted the event. You saw and you believed that I successfully completed the journey across the falls. Why not now, one of you, get on the handlebars and ride across with me? That's trust. That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants to bring us to. And Thomas is on that journey. Thomas, given an opportunity to acknowledge tactile evidence of who Jesus is standing before him doesn't need it. That, that knowledge has already been attained. He expresses his belief. He's not at trust yet, 
but he's far more closer to that element than the other disciples were even a week earlier. He responds to Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you come to believe because you have seen me? And he says that congratulatorily, not with a question mark as it appears in our Bibles. He's delighted that Thomas has made this journey from knowledge to belief. And then he continues, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. There are some, we don't know who they are, who have knowledge and belief and have entered that final element of trust in Jesus. That's you and I, by the way. Our faith expressed in that same progression. That's why this story is at the end of John's gospel. It brings the gospel narrative to a conclusion because we read now in the last two verses that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, which means I've come to the end of my gospel account. But these are written that you, you and I, may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you, you and I, may have life in his name, knowledge, belief, and trust. The disciples, a week prior, had knowledge of Jesus that, that was evidenced by his physical presence among them as they probed his wounds, and they then added to that knowledge belief. They announced to Thomas that they had met and examined and knew Jesus as the risen Lord. Thomas wanted the same opportunity and afforded the same opportunity, didn't need to build on additional knowledge. He came to the second stage of faith. He believed, and now you and I have that element of trust added as well. And so the gospel concludes with those words. These words are written that you and I may come to believe. That is that third stage, knowledge, belief, and trust, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you, you and I, may have life in his name, in the name of Jesus. Well, that brings us to an end of our reflection for this week. Remember, I have a Bible and I'm happy to travel. So if you have occasions in your church community where you need a biblical speaker, a seminar presenter, perhaps someone to work with a mission team, an Advent or Lenten presentation, give me a call or contact me through the email associated with this podcast, gospelcomestolife at gmail.com. But for now, that's all this teacher has time to do. And I'll never tire of reminding you of what great students you are. God bless. Until next week.